Well, I've often said to young candidates for the House and Senate, they always ask my advice as to how to win. I can tell them either way, you how to win or lose, because I've been through both. But uh, I say that first, pick the right wife, uh, because uh, the, the wife as a partner in a campaign is an enormous asset. Uh, doesn't make as much news, uh, and she must uh, recognize that, that the husband is going to make the news, generally speaking. But the wife has an enormous impact in bringing the, uh, the man, uh, the candidacy, to people that the candidate is, is unable to, uh, to reach. That was President Richard M. Nixon on September 12, 1971, introducing an hour-long ABC News special report featuring the First Lady, Pat Nixon. The President was on the eve of launching his re-election campaign, and in 1971 there was no better way of wooing conservative voters, particularly in the American South, than with an appeal to women. The former Confederate states were in the midst of a historic transition in which conservative whites were deserting the Democratic Party because of its commitment to black civil rights. Former Democrats were re-registering as Republicans. At the same time, white liberal Republicans and black voters in the party were pushed to the margins of power. Ultimately, these voters had no choice but to become Democrats. And women were now running the show in this new GOP soon to be called the New Right. Nixon and his advisors are often credited with developing the so-called Southern Strategy, a process of political conversion that brought these 13 states into an ever more conservative GOP and made the Democratic Party the home for an uneasy coalition of liberals and left groups. But that shift started long before 1968 with a group of women in Georgia They were Republicans, many migrants from Western and Midwestern states who wanted to win Georgia in 1964 for presidential candidate and Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater. Led by Lee Ague and assembling in small groups, they substituted shoe leather and volunteer labor for the funding Georgia Republicans lacked. These Goldwater girls, as they were called, took over the remnants of a GOP that had been almost powerless in the state since black voters had been largely disenfranchised by militant white supremacists at the end of the 19th century. And then these women built that party back up, phone call by phone call, door knock by door knock. Goldwater didn't win that election, but he won Georgia and four other Deep South states. As importantly, in that campaign, Ague, along with Catherine Dunaway, Beth Calloway, Lee Wysong, and other Goldwater girls, built a formidable statewide network of women, a political organization that they put to work for Republican candidates. By recruiting Democratic women through social events that they called two-party tea parties, they also recruited those women's husbands to the GOP. And by linking up with conservative women around the country, they created a national network that Phyllis Schlafly joined forces with, not just to transform the National Republican Party and elect Ronald Reagan, but also to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment. We are living with the consequences of that activism today. A radically conservative Republican Party and, as importantly, conservative activists who identify primarily as mothers and wives. Operating under new names, Conservative Women of America, Moms for Liberty, Moms for America, their political activism seeks to transform our schools, our communities, and our society today. And while black women have led the fight to make Georgia blue again, white women tenaciously cling to the GOP. Only 20% of white women voted for Stacey Abrams for governor in 2022. 
That's why I asked Robin Morris, a historian at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, to come talk to us today about her book, Goldwater Girls to Reagan Women, Gender, Georgia, and the Growth of the New Right, now out from the University of Georgia Press. Beginning with the African-American club women who established the Georgia Federation of Republican Women, Robin shows us how these black activists lost the organization and the Georgia Republican Party to an ambitious cadre of white women who, in turn, brought their brand of Republican conservatism to the Sunbelt South. Along the way, they made white supremacy, sexual censorship, and populism not just respectable, but as American as apple pie. Join Robin and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode eight. First, pick the right wife. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And so wonderful to read your new book, Goldwater Girls to Reagan Women, Gender, Georgia, and the Growth of the New Right. And it was particularly fun to read it because Georgia is playing such a large part in our political imaginary now. Yes, we have been having campaigns for about six years straight now. Let's start there. After Stacey Abrams lost her second bid for governor, we learned that only about 20% of white women voted for her in Georgia. And that stunned a lot of people who don't live in your state. But your book explains how that outcome has a long history. What is the story you would tell about the white women's vote and the rise of the Republican Party in Georgia? Yeah, this is a story that comes up with every uh, political election year of people being surprised that white women are not voting as as they think they should. And, you know, this is something we see repeatedly in Georgia. I talk about it in the conclusion that white women are voting for Trump. They come out for Kemp twice now. And really the story goes back. Um, I, I talk about how white women were really at the fore of conservative organizing in the South. My book starts in the 1950s and it, we really see this take off with Barry Goldwater. So what I'm talking about, and I think what happened is these women start using politics of gender and politics of motherhood. They're just no longer talking about race. They're they're talking about motherhood instead of talking about uh, integrating schools. So we're seeing that they're just making this shift a little bit, but they're never really changing. Yeah. And as you're inferring here, there's also an important story about Black women embedded in this book. Black women who are longstanding Republicans and yeah. who in the 1950s and 60s are really just starting to vote in larger numbers. And they're still trying to establish Black voting rights, but they find themselves in a dilemma by 1964. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was uh, one of the surprises in my research when I got to the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas, which is a great library. <laughs> if anyone gets to go out there, you'll get a lot of really good chicken fried steak, too. 
the the first Republican women's clubs in in Georgia and in the South were really these African American women's clubs. Um, and they, the women in the 1950s were saying that they were Republican because their dad was Republican, because their grandfather was Republican. So you see that line going back to Lincoln and that, that importance of, of the freedom movement, talking about Eisenhower as the great civil rights president. So all of that does change in 1964 with the candidacy of Barry Goldwater, who comes in and he's, of course, voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. White people in the South start to move over, start to shift, and we start to see a, a tension. It might be familiar, a tension in the Republican Party between moderate Republicans, um, the more liberal Republicans who are the African-Americans, and, and the conservative Republicans who tend to be more white. And some of the women, I just want to point out, some of these women, the black women in the 1950s were eligible to vote. There were very few black voters, but these were also women who had gone to the AUC schools. They had gone to Clark Atlanta, Morris Brown, Spellman. Um, so they, they were really that black middle class in the sweet Auburn neighborhood of, of Atlanta. Yeah. And, but some of these black women are actually conservatives and they've got one candidate who is the Republican candidate they should be voting for, who's against civil rights. And then they've got the Democratic candidate who they don't really want to vote for, who is the civil rights president. So how do they resolve this problem? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting um, dilemma that's that's happening for for the voters. And I think there's a tension and like a, a lot of Southerners are sort of like, oh, my gosh, what do we do? You know, white people are thinking I've always been a Democrat. How do I do this? Black people are thinking I've always been a Republican. But oh, my gosh, what's going on? So there is kind of this this moment of what's happening. And we're, we really see it play out at the local conventions where Black people, the Black Republicans are really coming out and saying, we need to support Rockefeller. Um, we can't support, we cannot vote for Goldwater. We can't go against civil rights. Eventually, of course, they lose because there's so many new white Republicans in Georgia. Um, they still cling to a few local positions, precinct captains and things like that. But they they really start to struggle during the Goldwater years. Some of them do hang on. So there's a group of black women Republicans, the Metropolitan Club, that hangs on at least into the 90s. They keep writing black Democrats and saying, don't forget that there are black Republicans. And they're writing to uh, to Republicans and saying, don't forget about black voters. So they're trying to bridge this ever-growing gap um, that we see between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and Black voters and white voters, and they're, they're trying to hold this, hold a coalition together, and it's really not working for them. Well, and it, it's hard for them, too, because there's really no place for them in a Republican right. Party that refuses the civil rights movement um, yeah. and that basically refuses their right to vote, their right to go to school. And Goldwater doesn't win in 1964. And, and I think it's important to remind our listeners that really the primary system is very, very rudimentary in 1964. So there really aren't a lot of primaries happening anywhere. And it's all about the organizing. So yeah. all of these white women organize for Goldwater and he doesn't win the election, but the women who work for him feel as though they've won on a certain level. 
to read the to read what these women are saying, you would not know that Goldwater lost the election because they're saying he won in Georgia. They keep saying the Republicans have won in Georgia and there's all this enthusiasm. In 1964, they also got the first Republican elected to Congress from Georgia and Bo Calloway. So there's a lot of reason to celebrate in Georgia. It's it's interesting. They're kind of looking around like the rest of the nation let us down, but Georgia did it. So now it's kind of it's it's strange living in Georgia and writing this book right now because it's like now the Democrats are looking around saying everybody else let us down, but Georgia did it. Um, so it's it's really kind of I'm living in bizarro world um, living in Georgia at the moment. Well, and we're going to have to talk about why Georgia is this flippable state is the harbinger <laughs> harbinger of things to come. But before we get there. I want to ask you about the techniques that these women used so successfully yeah. to organize for Goldwater and particularly the two party tea parties, which I love. So the women that um, are coming down, these white women I'm talking about are living in Cobb County, which is, of course, a suburb of Atlanta. And there a lot of them are coming from moving here for these new tech jobs. Um, they're coming down to work, especially at Lockheed and the, the technology around it. So they've lived in places with the Republican Party before. So this is not a whole new thing. They bring it with them and then they expand it. Lee Ague starts in Cobb County in Smyrna, these two-party tea parties, where she's saying, this is a way we can gently introduce people to a two-party system. So it's, it's supposed to be a way to bring in kind of curious Democrats to to thinking about, you know, introducing them to the idea of switching their vote. Um, and this is a really strategic plan because it's it's number one, it's social. So it's getting middle class white women together in a social setting, really kind of a get to know your neighbors situation for all these new people moving to Georgia. But also it's a gentle way of introducing the party. It's not a beating you over the head. It's not showing up randomly at your door. It's, you know, a social way to begin to introduce the Republican Party. And then what she's encouraging them to do is go home and talk about what you did tonight. So the women are the ones who are bringing Republican politics into the home. Um, I think a lot of people have thought that it was men who were voting Republican and telling their wives what to do. But what I found is that it's the opposite, that it's the women who are gently introducing the party and the idea of voting Republican. And then that's how it gets back to the husbands. Well, and they also make a big impression on male politicians, too, because mm -hmm. they're doing all of this work for free. That's really yeah. important political intelligence. They're, they're producing this political oh my intelligence. Gosh. So, so how, what are they doing that is making them valuable to this male party structure? Oh my gosh, they are doing all of the work. <laughs> they are amazing. I love these women. So yeah, they realized that the Georgia Republican Party has no money. So they contribute, they volunteer all of these hours. Lee Ague is training them. Eventually, once they get enough volunteers, they start calling, they start going door to door and just talking to people who are, what are the issues you care about in this election? Which of these political names do you recognize? And they're gathering all of this data for the candidates. And it's incredible. And Lee is so, Lee Ague is so amazing. She is counting every single hour. So then she can go back to the candidates and say, 
these are the hours that women have donated to you. This is what it would have cost your campaign. You need to be grateful for us. So she is reminding them and her, her slogan becomes, we can win with woman power. She's really um, great at both energizing the women to do this volunteer work and then telling the male candidates what is so important and that they need to recognize the women as voters. And they also issue these instructions to male candidates about how to feature their wives in their campaigns. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh my gosh, absolutely. The Republican Senate's um, campaign committee, coordinating committee, issued a uh, primer for candidates' wives that gave this information, like always have an extra pair of hosiery, have an extra pair of gloves, remain quiet, be seen. And I just imagine Lee reading this and thinking like, oh, hell no. So then Lee went and wrote a book for candidates about the women in your life. And she said, always recognize your wife. Remember that everyone else will just suck up to you, but your wife will be honest with you. She said things like, be sure that you walk behind your wife. Um, So, you know, I'm writing this as Trump is getting criticized for walking ahead of Melania. And I'm just like, he could have used this book. She's telling the candidates, your wife is a great ally. Let her talk. Send her to women's groups. Don't forget the women volunteers on your campaign. Be sure you recognize them and thank them. And she's reminding them that you have voters, women voters. So talk about motherhood. Talk about schools. Talk about the things that women care about. So, yes, she is reminding them of this power of women in every way. And then in 1966, with the gubernatorial campaign, Bo Calloway, who's running for governor, hired Lee Agu, I think she was still a volunteer, appointed her as his women's activities coordinator. So she and Beth Calloway, Bo's wife, and an Agnes Scott alum, I should say, go all around the state going to talk to women's clubs. And what that did was it opened up areas that would welcome a woman that would not necessarily welcome a Republican, right? So she can go down into what was Maddox country, the rural part of Georgia that was very in support of Lester Maddox. But she could go down there and people would welcome her into their homes for one of these two-party tea parties that kept going from 1964 into 1966. And she starts to convert a few people at a time. Um, And that's what's really important in 1966, that now all of the votes in Georgia count. Um, the county unit system, which was sort of an electoral college system of county of Georgia counties, is broken down. So now each vote counts. So getting just a few rural votes for the Republicans really does matter. And it's Beth and Lee who do that. And, you know, we really see in your book that they grasp something that really only becomes obvious to the rest of us decades later. If the Republicans can improve their margins in these counties, they can actually contribute to a statewide victory. Yeah. If you just get a few more votes in those what used to be blue counties. And it's interesting that that's become Stacey Abrams whole goal too, of just getting a few more votes. You know, if you go into the counties that aren't going to go majority for whichever party you're in, but you get a few more votes, then those can add up, add those to Atlanta and the suburbs, and that can make a big difference. Um, So it really, it's a great strategy. (laughs) You know, there's some names that are coming up here. One is Lester Maddox, Um, who was a famous segregationist who kept running for political office. Um, Another is George Wallace, 
um, yep. another famous segregationist who is actually running for president. And one big theme of this book is that these women actually reject those candidates. And oh, yeah. the Georgia Federation of Republican Women manages to mute the ugliness of massive resistance to desegregation and channels that struggle into a set of questions about parental authority and family values that serve the same function. So, so the question is not whether they will support a racist for political office, but what kind of racist they will support. It sounds awfully like the anti-critical race theory and book banning campaigns we're coping with today. What are the similarities and the differences between then and now? That's a really great uh, comparison um, because the women in the 1970s really began focusing on, on the school issue. So Lee begins... At this point, she's remarried, so her name is Lee Miller. Um, that's one of the challenges of writing about women, by the way, is sometimes their names change. So Lee Agu Miller, at this point, started a campaign called uh, Operation Lend an Ear. And the whole time she's doing this, she's like, it's just a little volunteer. We're listening to parents. We want to listen to mothers. They publish this um, survey in local papers the whole time she's doing this, she's coordinating with the White House. She's talking with Harry Dent. They eventually take this nationwide. They get on the Today Show. But what this is doing is letting them give this front of assessing what parents think about the school situation. But they're really also learning about how do we talk about busing without talking about race. So they start talking about neighborhood schools. They start talking about mothers needing to be closer if their children get sick. They start really reframing it as a family issue. So I think it it's also this moment of recognizing the political nature of schooling. And that's what we see with, with critical race. There's, of course, um, I'm forgetting the author, but there's a good book on the West Virginia textbook that's happening, textbook cases happening at the same time, um, where women are really, especially conservative women, are really finding their voice and their power with using motherhood to shape some of the school issues and what gets taught in the schools and and also the where their kids go to school. That's kind of the fundamental question of Operation Lindenier. Well, and, and one of the things you point out is that they send out these surveys and doing survey work is crucial to Operation Lindenier. And mm -hmm. nowhere on the survey do they ask the race of the respondent. And yet they then kick out these reports that say black and white women are all concerned about these issues. So talk about that a little bit. That's there's a little shifty business in there. Yeah, yeah. They don't collect the the race of of the people who are voting. They also don't collect um, information about the sex. They do collect um, addresses so they can find the sympathetic people and go recruit them to be Republicans. So that's very strategic. And they are also placing these, especially when they start, they're placing these in white newspapers. They're placing these in, they, they say they have suggestions, put them in your PTA, um, take them to your dentist office. So they're placing them in the in areas where the women are going. And these are white women who are distributing it. But then once it comes out, they're able to say, this is a concern of American parents, right? Because they haven't collected this other information. Um, so they're not necessarily coming out and saying this is what black families are concerned about or this is what black teachers are concerned about. They're presenting this as the American voice. And that's um, what's 
what's effective for them to be able to say that. And it's also what then Nixon is able to say when he starts talking about race. Of course, like around the time these come out, Watergate is happening. So he's, he's sort of fighting that more. But yeah, it really becomes this new face of massive resistance. Yeah, I think you point out at a certain point, too, that it's unlikely that Black women this close to the terrors of the civil rights movement would have put their views down on paper anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it also depends on where someone is. So there's a reason that the Black Republican Women's Club is in Atlanta, because there is some safety there. There's some security there. This is something that um, Maurice Hobson has a great book about Atlanta, um, that there is a Black middle class. It's less likely to do that if you're in rural Georgia, where you might have more um, economic interest, or yeah, you're definitely closer to some of the terrors, or your family was closer to some of the terrors of the civil rights movement. So, so yeah, they're definitely not collecting a lot of uh, Black voices, nor are they seeking to. They claim to be giving an ear, um, lending an ear to the American voice. And for them, the American voice is that white middle-class motherhood. So let's talk about white middle-class mothers. Why did these organizers believe that women were particularly suited to political work? And how does the campaign to pass the Equal Rights Amendment that is initiated in 1971 makes their conviction that women must get into the political arena into a national story. Yeah, well, they believe um, Lee Lee Agu Miller was so good at framing politics as women's work. Um, She said that, you know, women are used to being social and you need to have those skills in order to, to grow a party. She said they're used to doing work that takes a while to pay off. And she would compare it to things like gardening, where you start in one season and you finish in another season. So she was always framing this in sort of traditional gender ways to let women know, like, you know how to do this, letting them know you don't have to have a million dollars to have influence. Um, And I think that's what's really key in what she's doing. Um, So with the Equal Rights Amendment, this is a moment when there's a split So the Republican women continue to support the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, I think we saw that really well in Mrs. America, um, that the Nixon White House isn't pushing too hard, but they are, um, with Jill Ruckel's house, they are trying to pass it. It doesn't seem like a big deal. Everyone thinks it's going to pass. It's the Phyllis Schlafly side of it, because Phyllis left the Republican Party um, after a debacle um, of leadership challenge in the National Federation. So she left the Republican Party and took her more conservative followers with her. And then in 1972, she starts organizing against the Equal Rights Amendment. So Robin, let's listen to how Schlafly, a woman who had paid household help and spent decades flying around the country engaging in conservative activism before and after the fight to stop ERA, let's look at how she framed conservative family values as the real face of gender equality. When you make uh, the laws apply equally to men and women, you end up taking away many of the rights that women now have. Uh, For example, the Equal Rights Amendment will make our young women subject to the draft and military combat the next time we have one of these wars that we have every 10 years. Because no longer could you have it just apply to males, it would have to apply equally to females. And then ERA is a big attack on the rights of the homemaker. The laws of every state make it the obligation of the husband to 
support his wife, to provide her with a home, uh, to support their minor children. Uh, the woman in the home can draw Social Security benefits based on her husband's earnings, even though she's been a homemaker all her life. Now, all these things will be lost when you apply a rule that says that everything must be equal. Now, until you can make it equal for men to have the babies just like women, then it is a double burden to the women to say that the rules for family support should be equal on the husband and the wife. Uh, ERA ends up in taking away the right of the wife uh, to be supported by her husband and uh, to have the right of, uh, to get credit in the stores based on her husband's earnings. But Schlafly, who founded the Eagle Forum in 1967 as an umbrella for raising money for the conservative movement, well, she kind of stumbled into grassroots activism around women's issues, didn't she? I kind of think my suspicion is that she was surprised it took off. Um, she she really wanted to be a voice in national defense, but people listened to her on gender, so she kept going with that. But they really started to form this voice for women saying that feminists weren't speaking for them. Um, a lot of these were women who wanted to stay home with the children and they felt like they felt like feminists weren't talking about them, that all of the advocacy to get women into law school, to get women into med school, wasn't recognizing that for a lot of these middle-class women, it had been their dream and it was their vision of the American dream was to stay home with children. So they felt left out and therefore they began organizing and saying that American women were the most privileged class. Um, and, and they really formed some amazing networks, national networks that trickle down into local networks and trickle back up into national. It's an amazing organization. Well, and, and you really show in the book that what Phyllis Schlafly is able to do with the STOPS ERA organization really depends on all the work that Lee Ague and her comrades did prior to that. You know, yeah. that Phyllis actually stepped into an organization in Georgia that is ready to receive her and ready to go to work for yeah. this purpose. Absolutely. She, when I interviewed her, Phyllis told me that the, her first and her best state chairman, and they did call them chairman, um, was Catherine Dunaway in Georgia. Um, so as soon as she formed Stop ERA, she reached out to Catherine Dunaway. And Dunaway had been active, very active in the Georgia Federation that Lee had built. So the two women split at this point. But yeah, Catherine Dunaway was in line to be president of the national of the Georgia Federation of Republican Women when she walked out and joined Phyllis and became the state chairman of Georgia Stop ERA. But she took with her all of that network that she had from her decade of experience in Georgia politics. And she took with her all of the connections she had with legislators. She took with her all of the connections she had made in various communities, pastors, all of these connections that she had made in the previous decade. She still had that in her literal Rolodex. Um, we talk about a Rolodex kind of metaphorically now, but yeah, she had all of that, all of those connections. And she had actual mailing lists. I mean, this is really yes. something we see in the post-Goldwater period is the creation of the mailing list as a political tool. Yep. She had the mailing list and the phone tree. The phone tree was really key for that because um, the way it, would, it was organized was Phyllis could call Catherine. Catherine could call 
like five people, those five people called five people. And there's these trees that, so something could get from local, from like Waycross, Georgia up to Phyllis Schlafly with five phone calls. So there, I think it's also important to recognize they're doing all of this amazing work with typewriters and telephones. They don't have text. They don't have email. They, it's it's pretty much, they do have Xerox machines. So they're using that a lot. Um, Catherine Dunaway's husband was a lawyer. So she used the Xerox machine at his office a lot. Um, but yeah, they're doing all of this without the the text blasts that we get today or the Lord have mercy, the nine emails every day. Oh goodness. You know, also really the design of their work has just been exported to new technologies and made, as you're saying, sort of excessive and superfluous and so on. But the principles still remain as does another principle of their work, which is that their political style is distinctly feminine Um, And this creates a stark contrast with the styles of liberal and radical feminist activists. How did that play out? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, So one thing I wish I had had in the book that um, I I sent this book to Catherine Dunaway's son um, after it was done and I got to talk to him. So he said that um, Zell Miller would talk about, would ask him, was your mom one of those red dress ladies? So all they would show up at the Capitol and they had some... um, some dress code rules, not totally official, but they really encouraged the women to wear dresses, um, wear red for the stop. They would talk about how do you do your hair? How do you do your jewelry? Um, They were really trying to promote this feminine ideal um, with everything they did. Um, They did trainings for television and um, trainings to help women develop the confidence to go on television, to do public debates, to do, um, to lobby their, uh, representatives. So they would bring in, um, cameras and they would practice and help them bring in, um, makeup artists to tell them how to, how do you do your makeup for television? They would, um, tell them how to sit. So sit with your knees, with your knees together and your legs crossed at the ankle. Um, so they were really helping them Um, get this public persona and especially develop that confidence. That was the main thing that they're doing is developing that confidence to get out there because so many of them would say, I'm just a housewife. And they would say, you are absolutely who we need. There is no such thing as just a housewife. A housewife is an activist. Um, So they were really great at getting that out there. And yet really um, showing up with snacks, they would show up with cakes and breads. They had a Valentine's lunch every year um, and they would, they said they would feed everybody and they criticized the pro ERA side for only giving chocolate to the people who voted with them. So they were trying to show this nurturing idea um, and show and really trying to be open and let them, let other people come to them. And that's how they could get people to, to listen to them. It's, it's an amazing strategy. They also would say when someone is yelling, talk more quietly. So they would lower their voices and you can see this anytime you see Phyllis Schlafly, when I I got to see her a few times and I remember um, one time people got up and walked out and she just smiled. Like she loved that stuff. Oh my gosh. She loved when people, if people didn't protest, she thought she had failed. So the worst thing you could do if you wanted to protest Phyllis is sit there and listen quietly. Um, but people would always like, and she would always sort of fight with this feminine ideal, smiling, talking softly, 
Um, she thought if you started yelling, you had lost the war. You had lost your temper and lost the war. And in, in that way, she actually did, in fact, draw in a lot of women who were probably on the fence and really themselves yeah. did not like the style of liberal and radical feminists with their blue jeans and their raggedy hair and their no makeup. Yeah. They were also so good at... Um, at taking the most extreme examples um, of radical feminism, like there was a play where there was a they had staged a castration on in this modern dance, so that went all around the circles. Lots of pornography, um, sort of like egregious. I was really surprised um, to at some of the archives where I found pornography, but they would use these egregious examples of um, radical feminism, you know, anytime someone was naked, they were going to talk about that. And like, this is the America they want your children to be raised in. And, you know, that sort of thing became effective. Which, which again, sort of reminds us of some of the stuff that's happening today, where sort of taking something that is actually a very small aspect of our society and moving it to the center as if this is a clear and present danger. Let's come back to Phyllis Schlafly, who you know is sort of an obsession of mine. Um, but <laughs> the success we bonded on that initially. Yes, we've totally bonded on our love for Phyllis. And people who don't love Phyllis can just like turn us off right now. Um, <laughs> no, these... stick with us and we'll help you understand it. So the, the successful defeat of the ERA leaves Phyllis Schlafly in charge of this vast network of state women's organizations that will shape Ronald Reagan's victory in 1980. But it also has other effects. Um, conservative Black women are pushed into the Democratic Party, and Schlafly's work on ERA also alters the national GOP by establishing the mother and the housewife, and they're implicitly white, as potent political actors and communicators who are defending their rights and privileges. Again, yeah. this seems to be a kind of prehistory for the groups we're seeing today, like Concerned Women for America, Moms for Trump, and Moms for Liberty. Yeah. So one thing I want to say right here is, yes, it is Phyllis Schlafly who's starting this family values politics in the 1970s. I think there's influence before that in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, but she's really the one who's bringing up this family values politics. Please stop giving credit to Jerry Falwell and the moral majority because she has started this in 1972 and he doesn't get there until 1979. So this is one thing that I really just need people to understand. Kevin Phillips is late to the Southern strategy because Kath, uh, because Lee Ague already started that in 1964. So please stop giving men the credit for all of these big transitions. You know, I think when Jerry Falwell wakes up and looks around in 1979, he's like, oh, ho, 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 look at these families and all these people. But it's because Phyllis has made them prominent, right? She, he, all he has to do is go to the Virginia legislature and be like, who are these women in the red dresses with a bunch of cakes? Because this strategy was working in all of the states. So yeah, this, the idea of uh, the mother really comes to play. And I think that Ronald Reagan and of course, Nancy Reagan really brings this up because Nancy is of course wearing her red dresses, going around talking about threats to the children, especially the drugs. Um, so she's not necessarily um, getting out there in the same, her, her activism as a first lady really is shaped around this idea of motherhood and her, um, her presence as, as a mother and 
partner to Ronald Reagan. Have you been to the Reagan Library? Oh, yes. I love the Reagan Library. I love I love the Reagan Library and that exhibit where like Jane Wyman doesn't even exist. And then suddenly like they're just married with children and it's like, oh, what happened? But yeah, you just see that family values happening at the Reagan Library. It's a fantastic place. If they're listening, I would love to come back and talk about this book. I love the Reagan Library. Let me ask you a question before we wind up. You keep talking about the red dresses and that the red is, it reflects the stop sign to stop ERA. Do we start talking about red associated with the Republican Party because of these women? I don't know where that comes from. Um, that's a good question. I I don't know. They do kind of adopt that color for themselves. That would be interesting because I don't remember growing up with red state, blue state language. But I will tell you, the pictures are in black and white. Uh, I'm holding it up like our listeners can see it. But the pictures in the book are in black and white. But just imagine that nearly every single picture of the white women it has them in red. So here's my last question. And it's what I ask all of our guests, which is why should our listeners read this book now? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and I think you read it now because Georgia matters. So if you want to know the history of what's happening in Georgia, then this will give you that. And if you want to know how to do political organizing, these women have a lot to teach us. Um, it's not the email blast. It's that personal one-on-one -on -one connection um, of how to talk to voters. So I think there's a lot to learn here. So if you want to know how to organize, this is a good book. And if you want to know how Georgia keeps flipping around, I think this, this will give you some good context for understanding why Georgia is always the most important state in any election year. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.